Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to Series 2, Episode 10 of From Page to Practice. Today we are looking at How Learning Happens by Paul Kirchner and Carl Hendrick, illustrated by Oliver Caviglioli. What strikes me about this book is the really user-friendly way in which it is constructed. Being such a big book, it's not something you can digest in one sitting. It's split into six parts, which are then broken down into chapters, and within each chapter, we're told why we should read this particular article, the abstract of the article, the article itself, how to use the work in our teaching, key takeaways, and then references and further reading. Whilst there is so much in each chapter, it doesn't actually feel as overwhelming as that might have sounded. It's clear, well written and laid out, and an enjoyable read. That's what makes it perfect for an episode of From Page to Practice. So before we hear from our nine enthusiastic readers for today, let's hear from one of the book's authors. Hello everyone. My name is Paul Kirchner. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Educational Psychology at the Open University. And uh, I'm also a guest professor at the Thomas More uh, University of Applied Sciences. Before getting into questions like why I wrote this book or who's it aimed at, I'd like to first thank Rebecca very much for showcasing this book and asking me to say a few words about it. And I'd also like to mention that it was a shared effort. I didn't do it alone. Carl Hendrick was my co-author, my sparring partner, and my link to current day educational practice in any event in the UK. Also, Oliver Caviglioli did a great job on the illustrations and format and layout of this book. Now to get down to brass tacks. Why did I write this book? Why did we write this book? Well, for me, the one driving uh, force was frustration. Frustration that I experienced as a teacher and as a supervisor of masters and PhD students. Years and years ago, I received my certification for teaching maths and sciences at the high school level. And I started to do it and I realized that I knew what I was supposed to do, or I knew what people told me I was supposed to do, but I really didn't get a background in why I was doing it and how it works and when it should work and when it might not work. And I experienced that frustration when I was teaching students who should be able to understand what was being taught, but still had problems. 80, 90% of the children went well, but that 10 to 20%, they had problems learning it. But my background didn't allow me to understand how I could or should deal with it. I tried my best doing my teaching in in, in five, six, seven different ways, explaining things differently, using different techniques, but I still wasn't able to reach a number of the students. And that frustrated me a lot. And as I said, the reason was I didn't understand why I was doing things. I only knew what they told me to do. I also experienced this with masters and PhD students who were writing theses and things like that. I realized that 
when I would talk to them about a certain aspect of cognitive psychology or educational psychology, that they hadn't really learned the fundamentals, hadn't read the seminal articles in my field, in our field. So that was one side, that frustration. I felt that teachers, teachers in training, uh, up and coming masters and PhDs within the cognitive and the educational psych psychology should have a better background. The second driving force is that along with three colleagues of mine, we did a piece of research in what was being taught, what was in the textbooks of teacher training colleges, universities in the Netherlands and Flanders. It was a replication of a study done in the United States. And we found that there were quite a lot of things taught, such as learning styles, multiple intelligences, learning pyramids, child-centered discovery learning, but evidence-informed learning theory from cognitive psychology and learning sciences weren't being taught. The, the masters, the people, if we're making multimedia, um, like Alan Pavio and dual coding theory, um, how we process information from Badley and Hitch, those things weren't being taught. So these teachers weren't getting a good background in how children, students learn. So those were, let's say, the two driving forces between why, about why I wrote the book, why we wrote the book. Now, who the book is aimed at? I can give you a fairly simple and short answer on that. It's aimed for a broad swath of the, of the public, of uh, teachers, teachers in training, bachelor and master students who are studying psychology, educational sciences, and the learning sciences, for uh, even uh, for uh, policy makers, so they can better understand the things that they're making policy about, but that at this moment don't really understand it. And it's also good even for parents. As to what the, a key takeaway would be for teachers, I think the key takeaway of this book is that teachers hopefully, after having read the chapters, will understand the why, the when, and with whom behind the what when it comes to teaching. That a teacher understands that, that you can use certain techniques to achieve certain things because of the research that was done. That you can't use it in certain populations because of the limitations of that theory from a cognitive psychological or a learning sciences point of view, that the teacher becomes more than just someone carrying out the lessons, but who understands his or her uh, area really deeply. You could compare it to a doctor. You don't want a doctor to only prescribe things because he or she was taught this is what you should prescribe. You hope that they the, the doctors understand the physiology, the anatomy, the pathology of human beings so that they can be better doctors. This is what I hope to achieve with this book with teachers. There are a few, actually two things um, I'd like to talk about that aren't directly related to the content of the book. 
And it's about two critical comments we uh, sometimes receive when people have bought the book and have bought it with a different view of what they were getting. Number one, it's not a self-help or, or a how-to book. It wasn't meant to be one. Every chapter contains a section on what research means for teaching and how the teacher can use it in the classroom, including takeaways. But it's not a how-to book. And you often say, but it doesn't tell me how to do it. It tells you how to make use of certain theories, but it doesn't tell you how to teach. It's not a self-help book. Second, there's not much in this book of, in, in, about the way adults, like parents, educators, edu uh, uh, raise juveniles. In Dutch, we have uh, words for this. It's called pedagogiek, of opvoedkunde. Um, that's the way you raise and rear children into becoming uh, citizens, moral adults. That's what we call in the Netherlands pedagogy of pedagogiek. And it's supplementary to what we call in the Netherlands didactic, didactics, which is the science of teaching. I don't know what these words are in English or if they even exist. Um, so we sometimes get comments that this pedagogical, this child raising aspect isn't happening in the book. And they, people who say that see it as a, a point of criticism. I can only say that I myself am not a pedagogue. I'm an educational psychologist, a cognitive psychologist. And I try to stay close to my area of knowledge expertise and to help teachers understand things from my area of knowledge and expertise. So that's about it. Uh, I hope that those who read the book enjoy the book. I hope that those who read the book gain something from it. And I hope that those who read the book share it with their colleagues, either in reading clubs, reading book uh, groups, or even within the, the, the staff rooms so that the idea of why we do certain things in teaching so that the teacher becomes a true reflective practitioner, gains hold, spreads, and becomes the norm. Thank you very much, and I'm now interested to hear what readers uh, thought about the book. And that's what this podcast, I think, is about, because it's called From Page to Practice. Enjoy, and thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Paul, for your contribution. You recorded it such a long time ago, and then I had to postpone due to the school closures, so it's been a long time coming. Now it's time to hear from our readers for today, starting with Zach. How Learning Happens is such a unique and useful book for my role. As an instructional design and technology leader at my school, part of my responsibility is to bring the most compelling research from the field into our faculty meetings and discussions. What is challenging is that even though I have near total access to research articles as a PhD student, I constantly have to find ways to get around paywalls and obtain the right permissions in order to share the research with others. 
Before this book, I was limited to distributing excerpts from government evidence reviews or articles from free magazines, such as The American Educator, and sometimes I would even contact the researchers to ask if I could use their articles in my workshops. How Learning Happens resolves this problem. It is essentially a collection of many of the most important articles to our field. It provides the abstract in the words of the original researchers themselves, and then an accessible description by Kirshner and Hendrick of the implications of the work for our practice. Even though I consume a lot of this research myself as a student, the book has made me aware of some of the foundational ideas in the field that my program may have missed, and it's provided me with insights that I probably wouldn't have discovered on my own. For example, the Ossabel chapter on advanced organizers and prior knowledge made me think about how radically different an academic unit would be if students are simply given all of the atomized knowledge and the relationships between this knowledge on a single sheet of paper before the unit starts. And the Regaluth chapter armed me with the analogy of the camera lens, where units of study can start with a zoomed out view of the bigger picture and then zoom in on each of the components in more detail before zooming back out to see how the individual components relate to each other. Each of the chapters is like a mini training in itself, and it's one of the few books that I keep and control F constantly to keep our training agenda grounded in educational psychology and cognitive science. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Zach. It's great to hear from readers who are based in different countries and contexts. Next, we'll hear from Tom. So at Long Stratton High School, um, my school in Norfolk, where I'm assistant head teacher, we have a CPD book club. So the context for us uh, and for me reading How Learning Happens is that I was reading it, having chosen it for colleagues to read as well. Um, The way CPD Book Club works at our school is, if teachers want to, it's one of our optional professional development um, opportunities. And our staff who sign up for it, they are given a copy of the book and a bookmark and post-it note, um, any talking points that they want to discuss with their colleagues, Uh, And we meet usually over tea and biscuits in the school library. Um, But in this instance, because of COVID, we met online on Microsoft Teams instead. Um, Now, that means then that for me, whenever I choose a book for my colleagues to read, I always feel a great sense of responsibility. It's like when you choose the film when you're going to the cinema with your friends, you sit there in the dark and you're thinking, I I really hope they like this film. Except it's even worse than that because it's poor and it's not just two hours at the cinema. This is an investment. And this book in particular, it's substantial. It's, It's quite a long book, but it's also very meaty. So it's an investment of teachers' time. So I suppose I was reading it and I had that feeling all the time of thinking to myself, okay, I've read it already a little bit and made the decision that we should read this together. Um, And I was just thinking to myself, is this the best thing for teachers to read at the moment? And I I think it was absolutely a worthwhile read for so many reasons that I'll explain in a moment. But I had this just sense of caution because currently in our profession, the curriculum has become um, a high and has been long neglected, and rightfully, it's something that we are refining and reflecting upon and evaluating. And the curriculum matters, doesn't it? 
And alongside that, so does our subject knowledge. So there is a movement away from generic professional development and towards subject-specific professional development and the importance of our subject communities, developing our subject knowledge and so on. So I read how learning happens and just wondered, is this the sort of, is reading this the sort of generic professional development activity that people are pushing back against and perhaps is not the best use of our teachers' time? Um, but actually, I'd say this, this is the conclusion I came to. Um, it, this book made me think about the nature of being a subject expert and the difficulties that we encounter when we are so um, sure of our own subject knowledge and are perhaps not as effective as we could be in helping our students to grasp and understand and have the skills that that we grasp and understand and have the skills of as the experts. Um, so I suppose one way of explaining this is this. Um, it's possible, I think, for someone to have the best possible curriculum plan, really ambitious for their students, really exciting, interesting stuff that's the right thing for their students, and to have the best subject knowledge as well, really be an expert on the uh, subject knowledge required for that curriculum. And yet the actual learning for the students not to happen as you would hope it would. Um, that's perfectly possible if we as subject experts fail to understand how learning happens. What can we do in our classroom to make it more memorable, to make it um, easier to grasp, to make uh, sure that our classroom practice is informed by this evidence, particularly cognitive science. And I know when I look back on my own schooling, I can think of teachers who I was aware had real subject expertise and enthusiasm for their subject, um, but I struggled with the subject at times. And obviously what must have been happening would be that perhaps they were not able to help me as the novice to become the expert that they were um, very easily. And that's why in this book, there are so many interesting research papers that are summarised that help us to think particularly about how we simplify and how we explain our subject and how we break things down into the stages um, that will help our students. So on the subject of curriculum, it's particularly useful when we think about the sequence of our teaching and the sequence of the curriculum too. Alongside that, um, I read it knowing in the background that there was a lot of talk in the media about how best to teach because we've been going through um, a series of lockdowns caused by COVID and remote learning and then anxiety expressed in the media about the need for students to catch up. So it felt like because education was a hot topic during COVID, everybody seemed to be an expert on teaching and learning. And there were very loud voices on the radio, on TV, on social media, even amongst family and friends. And yet those voices weren't necessarily members of our profession. And for that reason, I really recommend this book because it helps us as a profession to be confident in the decisions that we make and to be um, 
best informed about how learning takes place rather than bending to the um, maybe the myths and misunderstandings that might exist. And on that note, the book finishes with a chapter called The Ten Deadly Sins in Education. It lists 10 myths, um, 10 things to avoid, 10 things um, that are often common misconceptions about education or about children, about learning. And amongst them are some that seem really relevant during remote learning and COVID and so on. Um, so one it lists is that the idea that children are digital natives and that they think differently from previous generations because of their digital lives. Um, linked to that, the idea that children can multitask because they've been raised on so many um, devices uh, and so on. Um, and likewise, the idea that with Google, knowledge is no longer important. And when I came across those, I thought, wow, I'd like to think that, of course, no one thinks those things anymore. And yet, because of COVID and remote learning, actually, I keep coming across headlines and sound bites that make me realise that, no, lots of people do still think those sorts of things. And therefore, I'd say this is a book that's really useful for us as a profession to sort of drown out all of the noise and all of the loud voices advocating for things that we know as professionals might not be the right things and to focus instead on the research and return ourselves to a position of feeling sure about how learning happens. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to hear how reading forms part of your school's CPD programme. Sorry that there are a few little issues with Tom's audio, but hopefully it was nothing that stopped your understanding of what he had to say. Next up, let's hear from Daniel. Hello, my name is Daniel Langley and I'm Head of Performing Arts and Lead Practitioner for Research Groups at Secondary School in Buckinghamshire. I'm also an EdD student at UCL Institute of Education in the Centre for Educational Neuroscience. I write a blog, Getting to Grips with the Basics, which you can find on Twitter, where I'd love to connect with you all and talk more about this book, my blog and everything to do with teaching and learning. I think I started writing the blog because I really wanted to bridge the gap between what I was doing in academia and what I do every single day in the classroom. And I'm really passionate about making the most of the time that we spend with our students because it always feels so limited. So I think it's always made sense to me to kind of do those things that have been proven to be most effective through evidence and research, the, the strategies and techniques which have shown to have the greatest impact on our students. And in that way, I believe that our students can really benefit from the best in teaching and learning. Now, I've been lucky enough since I became a teacher to benefit from a growing interest in research and evidence in education generally. And I just feel that there are more and more conferences, events, blogs, and just general engagement in evidence and research all of the time, which is incredibly exciting. And that's why I love this book, because it almost brings all of these threads together. What the writers do so well is they go back to some of the most important studies in education and re-examine them in such an accessible 
way, which is fantastic for very busy teachers. <laughs> they present the information in small chunks. They use the formatting of the book to highlight key points, key vocabulary. So it was really easy to make your way through it. And, you know, I find that as a teacher, I've just been able to quickly grasp what each of these studies is about and apply it straight away. I think a chapter could be covered in a single PPA study period. And so, you know, it really doesn't take that long to work your way through some really important studies. Now, as someone who's interested in educational neuroscience, um, I'm really interested in everything to do with the brain. And so that's why I love the first section of chapters in this book, which are focused on how the brain works. And in particular, I just want to talk about chapter two, which is based on Sweller's study of cognitive load during problem solving. Now, this was written all the way back in 1972, but actually, I think it has a lot of relevance today, particularly given the situation with COVID-19. So cognitive load, I was reminded, is the idea that students can really only hold and process a limited amount of information in their brains at a time. And this has been really influential on me in terms of lesson planning, in terms of the feedback I'm giving, and my curriculum planning too. The chapter highlights the difference between our students' working memory and long-term memory and reminds us that we shouldn't overload our students with too much information at any one time. And as I've just mentioned, I think this can be really tempting, especially at the moment as we try to make up for lost time, cram in more information, teach faster and catch up as we move towards the summer. And if we did that, if I choose to go faster in my lesson, then perhaps I'm going to feel better about the amount of teaching I've done. But when those exam papers come in, it doesn't mean that the students have learned more, because what this study reminds us is that a student's working memory can only process the same amount of information at one time, no matter how much content you as a teacher choose to cover. So, what have I done? Well, I've increased the amount of formative assessment and checking for understanding that I'm doing in every lesson. I've tried to resist going faster. I've tried to resist teaching newer ideas until the ones I've already taught have been mastered and that the students can demonstrate their mastery of those underlying concepts before moving on. Because whilst I might feel better about moving on, actually, if they haven't mastered the previous concepts, then I'm not doing the best by my students. And that's why I think this chapter and really all of the chapters in the book are just so important. And I really enjoyed it. I really recommend it to all of you as listeners. And I hope that you do enjoy it as much as I had. And I'd love to know what you think. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Daniel, for your glowing recommendation of this book. Next up, we hear from Corey. Hello, my name is Corey, and I'm a core curriculum leader at a primary school in Peterborough. Now, the book How Learning Happens by Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick, uh, I'd have to say, has got to be in my top three at the moment um, of the books that I just keep needing to refer back to. It's littered with uh, a range of research and there really is a, a real depth in the body of research that they have collated and presented within the book. But in the way that they've presented, it's in nice bite-sized chunks, small chapters where you do have the opportunity to dip in and out of and take that time to reflect before needing to move on. 
Now, um, the first thing I noticed when I first approached the book and, uh, and started to make my way through it was uh, the term, the Semmelweis reflex. Now, I, I won't go into the, the details about uh, and the origins behind that, but it was really, really fascinating. However, from that, it talks about this reflex-like tendency. And it's how I inferred it was the links to education within the classroom, but also across schooling, is uh, this, this element of dogmatism, where we don't do or we don't change things because this is how we've always done it. And that really stuck with me. It was something that I, I thought about uh, within the classroom, thinking, yeah, do I, am I only teaching in a particular way because that's the only way I know? Or is it because that's the way I've already done it? Or is it genuinely because I feel that is the best way for the children? And then I think more on a leadership scale, thinking about um, across the school, are we doing things the way we're doing because it is the best for learning? Um, and for me, I mean, the moral purpose has always uh, has always influenced me and has always stuck with me with regards to my decision making and in what way I will I will take that. But within the book, I thought that's a really interesting point there. Now, um, it highlights a number of fantastic um, cognitive um, psychology that you can certainly take back into the classroom with regards to enhancing your pedagogy, enhancing your awareness, um, your ideas for assessment, um, problem solving, your thinking around, around all the different aspects of learning from the child's point of view. But the area I'm going to focus on in particular um, links with metacognition and it's around the self-efficacy. And I think initially... I had to question myself, am I clear with the difference between self-efficacy and confidence? And I think self-confidence, we are all too quick to use it um, too often. And I think the self-efficacy, narrowing it down a little bit more about for the child, do they actually have an awareness and a belief that they can achieve? And if not, what can we do about it? Now, um, there, there's one chapter that does focus a little bit more on, on what we're all familiar with, growth mindset and fixed mindset. And it refers to the fixed mindset as the entity theory of intelligence versus the incremental theory of intelligence. But what I've taken away from this in this particular chapter is um, the idea that natural ability does play a big part in success. And upon reflection, I think I am guilty of that. I think I have in the past um, acknowledged or, or rewarded children describing how well they've achieved because, and even to my colleagues, because they just have this natural ability uh, and particularly for like supporting uh, those greater depths, um, I've thought, right, what challenges can I provide them? What more can I offer them? But what it's led me to think about is, okay, but what impact was this having or was there any detriment to the culture of the classroom and how is this seen by the other children. And from this, I thought, okay, sometimes I've tried not to make an effort. And I know, I know that I've tried not to make a big distinction to say, no, we're all at the same level. We can all, we can all achieve and make sure there isn't uh, any divide um, across the class. But I think one that perhaps was a bit naive of me because children can pick these things up and, and they know very, very quickly. Um, but two is what well, I think actually it's about actually making them aware that, yes, it does play a big part, but as, um, as it's highlighted in this chapter, that effort does really matter. And they talk about how the effort matters because it supports making margins. And those marginal gains are what lead to the significant gains. 
And I reflected on this and thought, um, and recently I'd seen as well across Twitter, the analogy of a ladder. Uh, on the left, we had a ladder with uh, small in- increments of the steps, smaller gaps in between in, in between them. And on the right-hand side, there was a ladder, same same length, uh, same height, but the gaps were much wider. And this really, really just resonated with what I just read in the book by showing that actually, in order to get to success, we need to support and take these small gains because trying to aim for the, all the big wins isn't going to do anyone any justice. It's not going to give them the support or the scaffolds that they need for that for that goal that we're aiming for. And ultimately, if they think they have to be taking these big steps in order to become successful, then they're not going to have that self belief. So that uh, that's really stuck with me. And then and then the next chapter really built upon this. And I loved how how um, as uh, Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick state they 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 perceive this book as a bit of a roadmap. And that's exactly how I've I've really interpreted it. One chapter building onto the next, uh, and the, and the depths of thinking that uh, it's, it's asking of me is uh, is really quite significant, but also really powerful. Uh, and the next part really um, is the idea between mastery and performance goals. Now I am aware of this, um, but in actual fact, um, I don't think I've gone into the depths of which um, which was highlighted to me through this chapter, and um, it's split into a quadrant. So um, if you can imagine a, a two by two grid, we have mastery goals and we have the performance goals. And on the left hand side, we've got uh, the approach orientation versus the advanced, uh, the avoidance orientation. Now, mastery, as we know, is about the depth in understanding. And I thought, actually, do you know, this really reflects on me, particularly for, for the greater depth of children as well, because all too often I think success is measured by performance, whether um, explicitly or implicitly, we often feel like getting 10 out of 10 or for, particularly for children, achieving this or get into this question or get into to whatever has been set for them is how they can monitor their success. But that isn't really success and nor um, will they have a deep understanding about how they are going to be looking for their own next steps if they feel like everything has to be quantified. So, um, how I took this away, the approach idea, uh, and this is ultimately what we're aiming for. We want the mastery approach whereby the children want to do well. They want to learn purely because they have this intrinsic understanding, the intrinsic motivation that if I do well and I understand, I will be better. Now, the avoidance mastery approach is the fact that they actually they, they, they want to do better, but the reason why they are trying so hard to concentrate is because they don't want to misunderstand. They don't want to miss the information that they need, and they know it's important to them. So both elements of mastery are, are important for success and will still aid this type of, of, of child. However, the performance goal is where we can then get a, um, a bit tricky here in terms of supporting children to their next steps and for them to see it themselves. Because the approach, the performance approach, is that they feel, well, as long as I'm doing better than my, my classmates, as long as I'm doing better than, than the norm, then for me, that is enough. That is, uh, that is me measuring my success. However, the avoidance approach of performance is the fact that, well, I just don't want to be looking the worst in the class. I don't want to be seen as bottom of the class. So therefore, this is why I need to try and listen and do my best in, in the lesson. So it really got me to reflect because I was, I think for nearly every child, I was, be, I was able to categorise them into one of these four headings. 
And particularly, I think uh, for one of my greatest depth, and I know I'll go on this a bit, a bit, but it was actually thinking, yeah, because um, as much as we do spend a lot of time with supporting um, those children who need those extra scaffolds and making sure we do our best to raise the attainments across, I think that challenge, sometimes we do a dis- disservice to the greatest depth children by not considering actually how are they perceiving themselves and are they aware that in order to to get the depths that they really need is because it's the right thing to do. And can they inquire, ask questions, can they develop that curiosity because they want to know more, not just because, oh, that's fine, I'm above the class now, that's it, I'm done, that's me sorted. So this was some re- really good takeaways that I've taken from the book. Um, and I think immediately this can be applied to the classroom, and it did for me, but also on a wider leadership scale. I thought, right, who else can I share this information with in terms of colleagues? Something for them to reflect on about the dynamics within their class. So if you're interested in cognitive psychology, I would highly recommend this book. You won't be disappointed. And I'm sure there'll be many takeaways that you'll be able to apply instantly into the classroom. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Corey. A really important point you made early on about having time to reflect on individual chapters. And I also appreciate your reflection on why we do certain things in the way we do. Now, next up, let's hear from Jasmine. Hi, I'm Jasmine Clark and I live in Leeds. I currently teach English at Leeds East Academy and I'm the literacy lead for the academy as well. I'm also the English curriculum staff and subject development lead for the White Rose Academies Trust. And so in this role, I carry out research and share this with colleagues through CPD and we consider how that research can be applied to the teaching of English. My Twitter handle is Jasmine R. Clark, so that's J-A-S-M-I-N-E-R-C-L-A-R-K-E and I try to share resources wherever possible and I usually share my take on recent books that I have read. The latest book that I'm reading is How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology and What They Mean in Practice by Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. It is a brilliant book in which Kirshner and Hendrick summarise 28 seminal papers and offer commentary alongside each paper. This makes the theory extremely accessible and clearly outlines how the findings from each seminal work can be used in the classroom. The chapter that I've been focusing on most recently is chapter 20, Feed Up, Feed Back, Feed Forward, which focuses on Hattie and Tim Pilly's paper, The Power of Feedback. I was drawn to this paper first as feedback will be vital to ensure we close the gaps for pupils who have lost learning due to the pandemic. The article explains how we must consider feedback as a continuum between instruction, telling pupils what to do, all the way through to feedback which uses questions to guide pupils. And it states that feedback must constantly consider these three questions. Where am I going? So what is my goal and what am I trying to achieve? How am I going? What is my current level of performance? And where to next? What actions do I need to take to reduce the gap? So in order to answer these three questions, um, the article states that feedback, the feedback questions can work at four levels. So it can be at a task level, which is how well the task is understood or performed. A process level, so the main process needed to understand or perform the task. Self-regulation level, which is self-monitoring, directing, regulating of actions. And self-level, which is personal evaluations and effect, usually about the learner. And so with this knowledge, I considered what this would look like in the English classroom. 
In order to help assess whether feedback needed to be given at a task level, I asked pupils to complete a, mu- a multiple choice question sheet before completing an extended piece of writing on the theme of conflict in Romeo and Juliet. The multiple choice questions check their knowledge of key vocabulary and key parts of the plot where conflict occurred. That way, when reading their essays, I will be able to see whether there are gaps in their knowledge, which hindered their ability to complete the task, or if they had strong knowledge and that they struggled with the essay writing element of the task. By doing this, it has enabled me to identify the root of the problem for each pupil, and I have been able to give feedback that targets the area to develop, such as um, if a pupil hasn't fully grasped what happens in Act 3, Scene 1, the multiple choice question has allowed me to see this and so my feedback ensures that that they are completing a task to work on that bit that they need to or with this multiple choice question I've been able to see that they have a full grasp on the plot and actually they need some more support using quotations for their essay writing skills and so that's where I would direct my feedback. Another way that I've used this theory in the classroom is by putting a different task in place to consider pupils' understanding at a process level before completing an extended piece of writing. So before completing the task, I would get pupils to answer the following four questions. So what is the task? Have I done anything like this before? How did it go last time? Are there any structures or principles I've been taught that I can use? So by getting pupils to complete this task before an extended piece of writing, it allowed me to see their thought process um, before attempting the question, and it allowed me to establish how well they understood what they needed to do to perform the task. And this helped to identify the level in which I need to give feedback out of the four stated in the article, and it helps me to ensure that these three questions are being answered. So where am I going? How am I going? Where to next? With this strategy of getting the pupils to answer what is the task? Have I done anything like this before? How did it go last time? And any are there any structures or principles I've been taught that I can use? Um, it's helped to aid pupils' metacognition as well, especially if they've done this before each time that they've written an essay. Um, so with this book, I've been able to really easily access the theory and I've been able to use it to suit my own class. Um, I'm really excited to read the rest of the chapters and I want to thank Paul and Carl for putting such a fabulous book together. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Jasmine, for your reflections. Next, we'll hear from a familiar voice to the podcast, and that is Henry. The reason I'm such a big fan of How Learning Happens by Kirshner and Hendrick is its accessibility, I think. Um, I work mainly in initial teacher education, and therefore am constantly delivering material to pre-service and uh, mid-induction teachers with regards to pedagogy and uh, development of their craft in the classroom. And I often go back to this book just to lift out valid and, um, you know, authentic research. Uh, I like the way the book is organised with our our different reflections on on cognition around how our brain works, Um, then the prerequisites for learning, the learning activities, uh, the teacher themselves, learning in context, and then those cautionary tales. And although each essay is very accessible in its own right, the whole book is a, a massive invitation to rabbit holes I think you can dive down from one essay into so many more and the way that the book has been set out um, leading us through those seminal works um, yeah albeit from you know a a relatively limited range of practitioners um, just opens up 
some of those real discussions that are going on in education at the moment. Um, and the concept of standing on the shoulders of giants, as uh, Kirshner and Hendrick allude to in their opening, um, you know, back as far as Hooke and Newton, and indeed, uh, you know, earlier than that, the phrase itself, this idea that actually, in order to improve ourselves, we can use the work of others, and we can you know, look off these uh, ideas that these people present and we can go down different areas and we can really consider what it is that we, uh, we're we trying to do. Um, Favourite articles for me um, in particular are around uh, the context and culture of learning um, and also the way in which learning uh, needs to be made visible. Uh, but most of the uh, the essays at various points I have referenced um, uh, in different ways, um, always with that essential context. Uh, I do uh, reinforce to our trainees that any idea that we take from evidence points to us something that has worked before um, and that we need to apply our own contextual understanding and our own personality, our own standpoint, look at our demographic, our ethos, our culture, all those different sort of transient aspects and then situate the research safely within those. Um, but I think in particular, there's some some key ones for me in the book itself. Um, uh, chapter 23, The Culture of Learning. So looking at Brown, Collins and Deguid's uh, work around situated cognition, uh, I find absolutely fascinating. Um, not just because of the, uh, the, the work that it's covering, but also the way in which um, it indicates to us that learning in schools is often devoid of the context in which the knowledge acquired is abstract, uh, to quote the book itself. Um, and that, for me, is, is how this book works. It's almost reflective. Uh, the book has to be taken with context, and the learning from the book has to be taken with the context in which that knowledge is being acquired, um, contextualised, and then delivered in everyday situations. Um, it's an excellent work. <coughs> Uh, and as I said, the, the rabbit holes it can lead you down are absolutely magnificent. Um, I've found myself delving deeper and deeper into various aspects, having looked at different chapters of the book, and um, also finding that you can just dip in and dip out. Uh, although there is a, a sense of narrative arc, perhaps, that runs through it, ultimately we are looking really at sort of 28, uh, 28 29 different essays, each that stand alone and each that um, guide you somewhere new. I would argue that it should be on most shelves if you're interested in research, if you're interested in the way in which uh, research evidence can inform educational practice. And from my perspective, as I say, in initial teacher education, although I wouldn't recommend it straight away to pre-service teachers, uh, purely because I think there's, uh, there's certain aspects that require a, a semblance of developing expertise to truly grasp. I would certainly place it in the hands of anyone who wanted to be working with early career teachers um, and certainly anyone who wanted to underpin their existing practice with much more of that theoretical aspect uh, that's found within the book itself. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thanks again, Henry. I loved what you said about it being an invitation to rabbit holes. You're so right. Next up, we'll hear from Megan. Hi, I'm Megan Bowes. I'm a secondary science teacher at Holmley Park High School, which is part of the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Megan Bowes. 
Now, I read How Learning Happens and it's probably one of the books that has had the biggest impact on the way that I deliver the curriculum in the classroom. And just very briefly, I think one of the reasons why this book is so fantastic is because it can be quite difficult to bridge that gap between educational research and what that looks like inside of our classrooms. And How Learning Happens um, is a really great way of finding excellent research and it being summarised in a way that you can then think about how that might look when you are actually teaching. And at the end of each chapter, there's a really nice kind of um, takeaway about what this could look like in the classroom. And it's in a sort of like a bullet point list as well of takeaway messages. Um, the two chapters I want to talk about today are chapter six, the research of Auschwitz, and chapter 16, the research of Raguluth and Stein. And I'm going to start by talking about um, chapter six and Auschwitz's theory of advanced organisers. The first time I read the chapter about Auschwitz, there was a quote um, within it. It's one of the first things you read in the chapter. And the quote says... The most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. And it really resonated with me because it took me back to times in my classroom where our learning journey had been constantly interrupted and I kept having to go back and reteach um, prior knowledge to students along the way because very, very simply the students just didn't have the prior knowledge they needed to be able to access the new material that I was teaching. And I kind of thought, yeah, actually, I, I, I agree with that. And what Auschwitz says is that when we start beginning a new topic, that we should present students with an advanced organiser. And essentially an advanced organiser is... Um, a piece of information that underpins all of the prior learning that students have that links to the new topic you're about to teach them. And it's kind of very closely linked with this idea of schema and developing schema. Um, now, the concept of schema is really, really complex, but essentially... When students in our classroom are learning, it's because they are taking a new piece of information and adding it to their existing cognitive framework. And to be able to do that really, really well, uh, we need to kind of, wherever possible, highlight the prior information that students already have to help frame that new knowledge into their existing network of information that they've got. Um, and presenting advanced organisers is a really good way of highlighting prior knowledge and underpinning knowledge. And I started doing this in my lessons. Um, so before I begin a new topic now, I spend a little bit of time thinking about what the prerequisite knowledge is. Um, there is a subtle difference between prerequisite and prior knowledge. So prerequisite knowledge would be the absolute essential facts that students have to know to be able to understand what you're about to teach. And prior knowledge could just be anything they've learned previously that links to it. Um, so obviously you would have to have your prerequisite knowledge in there. Um, but then you might also as well have some prior knowledge which would help to frame the existing kind of schema that they've already got and help them to place this new knowledge within that. Um, and then the second chapter in the book that links really closely with this is chapter 16. And this... Um, 
presents the work of Ragueluth and Stein and their idea of a um, the elaboration theory. And the elaboration theory, again, is to do with the way that you teach a topic and re- or represent the curriculum. Um, and they suggest that before you begin teaching a topic, that you should present the learning journey in its most basic form to students. So you actually show students the whole topic in a basic way and then start going in more detail in within that topic. And they kind of have this idea where you zoom out to zoom back in again. And I thought this was really great because, it first of all, it linked really nicely with the idea of an advanced organiser. And secondly, I can hugely see why it would be beneficial for students to just take a break from the nitty-gritty details that they're learning in lessons and go back to that bigger picture to help them make connections between what they've learned and just place those facts back into that bigger picture. And it helps strengthen that schema. And so I started to do this alongside the idea of um, Auschwitz Advanced Organisers. So I'll talk to you specifically about how this worked with um, my year 13s. Um, So I was teaching a new topic of the transition metals, which is quite a big, chunky A-level chemistry topic. And there's a lot of prior knowledge and prerequisite knowledge that the students need. So the first thing that I did before I began teaching this was identify that prerequisite knowledge and any prior knowledge. And I presented it to the students in the first lesson as a graphical organiser. And to be honest, it it looked a bit like what you might call a mind map. Um, But it wasn't cluttered with information there was visuals in there as well and we talked through and I taught them sometimes I I reteach that prior knowledge if I feel that's appropriate and we went through some of those underpinning concepts together and spent a couple of lessons going over that and after we'd gone through the prior knowledge and I felt that I'd framed um, what we were about to learn within their schema I then presented to them the the learning journey we were going on in its basic form. And again, this took, um, it it looked like a graphical organiser. So it was a bit like a mind map where I just said what transition metals were. We defined them. And then we talked about the four properties, which was basically what the whole course was about, but it just gave it in a much simpler way. And I left gaps on that. I left gaps so that when I zoomed in and then zoomed back out, we could fill in that um, organiser as we went along. So I'd done the advanced organiser of prior knowledge. I then had the basic overview of the learning journey. And then I just went in and started teaching in the way that I normally would do. So I taught kind of the nitty gritty details of each of a sequence of, I think, three lessons. After those three lessons, I then paused. And at the beginning of my next lesson, I zoomed back out to that bigger picture, that overview of the learning journey. And we added in, in a basic form, what we just learnt to our learning journey. And then I went back in and taught the next sequence of lessons and zoomed back in and taught the nitty-gritty details, took a pause again, zoomed back out, went to the bigger picture and added in what we just learnt. And then I just repeated that process until I got to the end of the topic. And what it really did was helped students to place those isolated facts back in the bigger picture, make links between concepts. And that really helps them to strengthen their schema 
um, over time and you're constantly going back to that bigger picture. And, and I did find that not only was it useful in terms of kind of um, retention for learning and building up their long-term memory, but actually the, the, the confidence it gave the students in where they were at in that learning journey, I think that's, it's also beneficial in that sense as well. Um, so overall, the two chapters, um, if you wanted to read them, in how learning happens that I'm talking about are chapter six about Ausbell and presenting prior knowledge in an advanced organiser. And then the second chapter is chapter 16, Wigleth and Stein's elaboration theory and particularly zooming in to zoom out. And again, it links quite closely with um, the work of Oliver Caviglioli with dual coding and using graphical organisers to present information. Um, so if you're more interested in what I'm talking about, then that, that would be a good place to go to. And I've also written a quite an in-depth blog about the process I've just spoken about. So if you went to my Twitter handle, that would be there as well. And so hopefully you, you have taken something away from this, but I highly recommend to read How Learning Happens. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Megan. Today's final contribution comes from Dave and Rhiannon. Hi there, I'm Dave Touchingham and I'm a lead practitioner in a school in Bristol. Hi, my name's Rhiannon Rainbow and I'm School Improvement Lead Maths for the Greenshaw Learning Trust. And we've been reading How Learning Happens, seminal works in educational psychology and what they mean in practice by Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. Um, and if you don't mind me starting, Marie, on this one, there's a couple of things that really stood out for me. And first of all, it was about the structure of the book. Um, so taking those um, pieces of research um, and, uh, and taking those papers, recommending papers that we can be reading and, and looking at the abstract, but then um, giving us the, uh, the takeaways in such an easy-to-use, manageable format so that we can take it into the classroom, I think really sort of fits that model of taking it from, from the book into our classroom practice. And, um, and one that stood out in particular for me um, was the... Um, the, the part of the book where where um, Paul and Carl talk about um, how how novices know less and think differently um, to to experts and how scaffolding um, is then a form of differentiation and, and how we can really aim high and support those students um, getting to the top um, through through how much scaffolding um, we offer them and I thought that that was just really interesting to to think about when we go back into the classroom. Absolutely. And I remember David Dye, in David Dido's session for the Greenshaw Learning Trust Book Club, where he talked about considering the way that we are chunking things for students who are in different places along that spectrum or anybody in a different place along a spectrum from novice to expert and how the size or the type of chunking used or the way if we're thinking of how the capacity with regard to cognitive load for a novice it's very different then to an expert so how we're breaking things down and how we're thinking about it from our end potentially with some subject blindness in there could be then very different to the experience of the novice learner I think so and and I, I really see this book in um in, in in my eyes as one that I just go back to time and time again when I want to really understand um the, the sort of detail behind pedagogy behind how we how we teach and uh, I know that, that Paul and Carl talk about the, the curse of knowledge in that as well that um sort of being able to break that down and chunk um, can be quite challenging if the teacher doesn't know what the steps are to get from A to B because they've been doing it so often and, and they've become so skilled at that. 
um, that, that seeing those steps can then be quite challenging, especially then teaching um, students a, a very basic concept, I think, can be, can be quite difficult. Um, one thing that, that stood out for me as well in the book was about um, direct instruction um, and, and the idea um, around that of using models, um, of guided students, making sure you ask them questions, checking their responses in systematic ways and the quantity of problems that are needed um, to ensure um, that the students uh, have the, the most chance of success through that journey from novice to expert as well. I thought that, that was really interesting in terms of the way that the, the um, and as math teachers, just how that mathematical modeling, um, but for any subject, how that modeling might look in the classroom. Yeah, and, and there are, there's um, a lot of work for direct instruction that's come over from America really, isn't it? And it's it, 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 in its main form is how it's been used there and, and how we're using it here. And I think there's a, there's a lot to be taken from it. But I also think before you use it, you need to read about it more and dig it dig deeper with the research. And that's what a book such as this helps teachers to be able to do. Instead of just seeing something on Twitter or reading a blog or somebody else's ideas, they can use that as a starting point and a prompt to dig deeper and find out what it was that that was saying and then actually be better informed about the decisions they make rather than taking somebody else's decisions as the direction they need to take. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and that's um, sort of helping to really form what I want to do in the classroom now in terms of the structures that I use. So um, within lessons now, I use a very clear worked example in your turn model where the students will follow a model of mine and one actually cognitive load um, and just to, to support the students just on that worked example to start with. So that they're really focused on that one question um, and make sure the your turn is linked very closely to that worked example. Um, through the narration process then as well, um, supporting that, those students to sort of see those misconceptions, to see that it's okay to make a mistake and, and the use of the visualizer for them to see me working in real time and making those errors and talking about why those errors exist um, and, and thinking carefully about that sequence, bringing them in, talking to them about it, asking them questions after we've gone through that model, why do you think that's happened? What's the same, what's different? But the book has given me that grounding, that confidence, I guess, to be able to, to do that um, without just thinking it's something that my gut tells me is right. It, it feels like there's a real sort of evidence base um, that supports that style of teaching. And, and so I go into the classroom with, with that increased confidence. And, and I think my, my instruction and my modelling um, has improved dramatically as a result of that as well. And it also means that as you're more confident and better informed about what you've done, you'll feel more successful in it. And somebody else who's a novice in that area might, from the outside, look at what you're doing in the classroom and say, well, that teacher's unprepared. They've just made mistakes with that with that model. Whereas I quite often think, uh, previously I just thought it was really important for me to narrate my thinking and model what happens and the steps I take to overcome when I make mistakes. Yes, um, in a workshop with Anne Watson and John Mason the other weekend, they mentioned that actually what they're focusing on was not answering the questions, but that maths is not about um, answering the questions, but about questioning the answers. So really digging a bit deeper about that. And so it just means that if somebody was to say to you, you made a mistake there, and where you have that professional dialogue, 
you have the confidence and the means by which to be able to explain and articulate your thinking and then you can both move forward with it together and I, yeah I, I completely agree and and it's um it's something which is just so important as well isn't it um one one thing that i got from the book um was about the culture um as as well it, and and after doing um, a session um, looking at Ron Berger's An Ethic of Excellence um, and looking at culture, we talked for an hour about what culture means, what culture means in mathematics in our, in our book club before we started inviting our authors to join us. Um, but it was, um, it was really um, powerful to, to talk through. Uh, but one thing I particularly like about this book is that I was able to read that chapter. And at the end of it, the takeaways again were so succinctly written that it just gave me something to straight away go, ah, I know what I need to do in the classroom. And I, and I think that that was, that was a real positive from reading this, this book is that um, even if you just read the summary points on the end of each chapter, for example, um, you will get so much from it so quickly. It's so, it's so dense with, with um, positive information about, um, about classroom practice. And, uh, and just to, to sort of demonstrate that, and my takeaway then from the culture um, was uh, to avoid um, the compartmentalization um, of, uh, of topics, of concepts, and to utilise opportunities for contextualization. so to, to look for, for making those links effectively. And it just made me think straight away with the culture, um, if we're going to be teaching topics um, now, we're teaching students how to, how to learn effectively, um, some, of, some of the concepts that they need to know um, aren't yet in existence. And so, so to, to teach them to how to learn, to, to how to be, um, to be that sort of positive learner. I think to, to do that and to, to make those links and to be looking for those within your lessons, um, within your lessons, within your teaching practice is so important. And, and it was just summarised so well to it's basically just look for those links. And, and it was just um, I, I thought the book was really a really easy read for things, for, for concepts that, that were potentially very complex. Absolutely. And I know a few of the conversations we've been having about mathematical methods and preferred methods and um, being careful and consistent with uh, the vocabulary that we're using with students. And that's just within maths. If we then spread that out to how we talk about um, approaches to teaching and learning in the classroom, how we discuss different ideas across departments, there are so many opportunities to have a common and shared language and to make connections in so many different places. And I think that only makes it better and richer and more consistent for everybody. I totally agree. Um, so, so, yeah, highly recommend reading that book if you haven't already done so. Um, have really enjoyed the opportunity to be able to talk about the material as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Dave and Rhiannon, for sharing your reflections once again. I really like these discussion segments, so please do let me know if you fancy teaming up with a colleague to do the same. The next episode is on Sarah Davies talking about oracy, and I'm still in need of volunteers, so get in touch if you've read it. That's it for this episode, so all that's left for me to do is remind you that coffee is always appreciated via my link, as well as your reviews, tweets, subscriptions and sharing. Until next time, bye! You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article, 
or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.